Welcome to 96 Greer's, a podcast where we watch every feature film with Judy Greer in the cast. I'm Reg. And I'm Patrick. Oh, this is um, this is an episode that I think uh, one of us has been uh, waiting for for a while and maybe pumping his fists in the air. It's it, spooky season! It is spooky season, finally. It's spooky season always lives in our hearts, but it is finally... Here, chronologically, yes. it is finally October. Yes. Um, our uh, home decorations finally uh, synchronize with the seasons. That's true. That's <laughs> true. We celebrate year-round as far as our color scheme goes. Yeah. Um, and uh, we are going to be discussing a spooky movie. Specifically, That's true. Specifically, uh, the uh, 2018 legacy sequel, Halloween. Legacy direct- sequel. Is that where we landed on that? Uh, that's the term that they use in Scream, fi- in Five Cream. Okay, in, in five, five Cream. Cream. Yeah. Well, Five Cream well, Five Cream should know. Those are Randy's uh, nephews? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Randy's nef- niece and nephew. Randy's niece and nephew yes. are two of the main characters in Five Cream. And another tie-in, but maybe it's a spoiler, so I won't say anything. Okay, fair enough, fair um, enough. Is it a, is it a spoiler that that Billy's daughter or do you find out like right in the beginning that it's you find out Billy's pretty daughter? early that Billy Loomis's daughter is right. uh, old uh, Wednesday Adams herself. R- oh, she's Wednesday Adams. I forget as well. the name of that. She's a very hot actor right now. She oh, was also she in Ty West's X, um, but I just I can't remember her name. Okay, okay, not um, not Mia Goth. Not Mia Goth. No. Um. Always a Wednesday Adams, never a Mia Goth. <laughs> the whatever her name is story. Yeah, she's raking it in, so we won't worry about it. I, I think we're probably going to be settling in um, uh-huh. for a very um, intense, uh, layered, in-depth conversation. Um, so, um, I, I mean, I'm ready. Yeah. I have my notes. I have my Amontillado, so we're both ready to you go. You have Amontillado? I do. Cask aged. Mm. It's very good. Do you want any? I I killed the bottle, but I have I have more back here. If you wanted to, why would you? Keep it's a little heavy. I might need your help, like pulling it down off the shelf. But if oh, you, oh, okay. I mean, we, we usually don't don't keep our liquor in the basement. No, no, no. Well, the basement it's it's a it's about the cool air. You know, it's cask aged. This isn't uh-huh. a glass bottle, so uh-huh. you need some of the air. You also need some of it to be able to evaporate out. That's the oh, angel share. Um, and I found that just like tucked behind that cobweb right there is like a really good place for it. And you oh, should uh, come help me out with this cask. We can tap it. Well, let's let's turn this podcast from good to great. I actually have to get up early, so I'm not drinking right now. Yeah? Yeah. Sorry. Huh. How, you, maybe, maybe some other time. How unfortunato. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> and that was the Amontillado bit. Do, 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 do. <laughs> is that really Amontillado? It is not. It's whatever fucking red wine we have in the fridge. Oh, God. So it's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> like revenge best served cold and sat on for at least six months we're not wine drinkers that's true <laughs> we are talking about david gordon green's uh halloween yes um right at the top of the podcast i would like to issue a challenge to the listener at home um get yourself your your beverage your your m&ms whatever it is you you want uh for a little 96 greers drinking game and that is 
Every time we say Greer when we mean green or vice versa, Ooh. Uh, take a drink or an M&M or whatever, you know, punch your sister, whatever you want to do. Have you done this so far? Have you have you said David Gordon Greer yet? I almost did, but I think this way it's going to make it a lot more merciful on me when I'm editing. Oh, OK. There we go. That's a <laughs> good point. I'm going to do this a lot. Little little mix, Alan Arkin, uh-huh. Alan Alda will be doing this the entire podcast. So buckle up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, I originally uh, when we were kind of laying out how we wanted the podcast to be structured, uh, we had the original idea of uh, starting with the question: Have you seen this movie before? Yeah. And usually we haven't. Usually they are, um, you know, like indies we haven't seen or or what have you but uh i think for this particular movie patrick i hadn't seen this movie before but had you seen halloween i have never gotten to podcast about the halloween franchise so here's the thing the halloween franchise is a really good place to sort of i call it the michael myers multiverse theory and it's kind of why you can just do unlimited sequels and nothing can ever ruin the original and it's because you can always fraction off where it's like, oh, yeah, that's a multiverse where the sequel doesn't exist. That's a multiverse where these sequels exist. That's a multiverse where that sequel exists. And I I have literally been like telling myself all week, just keep that hand on the brake, Patrick, because no one needs a fucking four-hour podcast about David Gordon Green's 2018. I have seen this movie. I love the Halloween franchise. I, I my convinced my mom to let me buy uh, the original movie from Suncoast Video when I was in fifth grade. <laughs> and she said, all right, but you can't watch it during the weekdays because you'll have nightmares and you won't get a good night's sleep for school. So wait till the weekend. And what I did is I snuck downstairs while everyone was sleeping and I put it on and I w- put it low volume and I just put oh, my face no. right up to the TV and the part where they get to their babysitting jobs and you hear the first like little stinger as uh-huh. Michael Byers steps out from behind the tree. Right. I jumped up and onto the couch, put a blanket over my head, grabbed the remote control, turned off the TV, and I sat there for two straight hours because I was too scared to go back upstairs to bed. Oh, no. I I really love this series and this franchise, and I had seen this movie like four times before. So, yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. Did you say that you haven't had a chance to podcast about the Halloween I've franchise? I've never podcasted it. I just never, really? I've never done an... I I did one commentary track on Rob Zombie's Halloween, and that was more about like me trying to grapple with Rob Zombie as an auteur or whatever. So uh-huh. it wasn't a lot about Halloween. Okay, and that was for Tracks of the Dam. That your, was for Tracks of the Dam, podcast. my other uh, horror film commentary track podcast. But I've never had like a podcast where they're covered. I don't really have friends who are into the Halloween franchise. Huh. Um, my best horror friend, like Gabe Powers, specifically hates all the sequels, and so I'm just. I've never gotten this opportunity to sort of blah, blah, blah out to people. And uh, I promise I will try to behave is, I guess, <laughs> how I, after, after not behaving for four straight minutes previously, uh, I, I, I will, in fact, in the future, try to just like be a, have a normal one. <laughs> have a normal one. Okay. Yeah. As we usually do on this podcast. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't know that. So mm-hmm. I, I can understand why you are so excited and you are a, a horror aficionado. Mm-hmm. Um, is the, would you say that, that the Halloween franchise is your favorite horror franchise? Um, it, it's probably the one I know best. Um, uh-huh. I don't, I think the nightmare on Elm street is probably like just the most consistently fun. And I just, I just love all the special effects and everything, but I think I, yeah, in, Halloween's probably my favorite in terms of the original is the best out of all like the horror franchises uh-huh. and I just, the sequels are sort of comfort food for me. So yeah, I, I guess so. Okay, cool. Um, I had not seen 
uh the 2018 halloween mm-hmm. i had seen i i am a i'm a big fan of the original one mm-hmm. um we saw it on halloween last year that's right in a theater and um we we live kind of close to a college campus and i think there were probably a lot of college kids in the audience who hadn't seen it before because you know people are laughing at like kind of the the outdated stuff in the beginning pj souls says totally 15 times in three minutes yeah or or like uh that that line that loomis has that you love so much lonnie get your ass away from there yeah yeah everyone everyone cracked up but it was really exciting to be you know sitting in this audience which was like kind of like kind of rowdy and like you know raucous and the the more we got into the movie just the quieter and quieter it got in that theater it was like this this is this is a true classic this is what it means to make a timeless movie yeah um and even re-watching it this weekend um which is maybe the the third or fourth time that i that i'd seen the original movie it was still there were still things like i was noticing for the first time you know j- just really having a grasp on on the story and what's going on and, and who who is who um just being able to appreciate like the the artistry of that movie it, it's it's really uh one of a kind and i've seen um halloween 2 mm-hmm. uh and and i think like like a, like maybe here and there a couple other uh sequels but i had not seen this movie plot summary michael myers is after laurie strode again what, what else do you need I mean, it is a slasher movie. It is less about story than about situation. Yeah. I don't I don't even think we really need to do a plot summary here. Um, Michael Myers is a serial killer, um, unstoppable, unspeaking, force of nature evil. He is after Laurie Strode. And and whoever he in this movie, whoever he can really get his hands on. Yes. Um I uh, and it, it is worth noting, as I I did a, a brief mention before of uh, something I actually believe in the Hall- Halloween multiverse theory or whatever. This is a film that is a direct sequel to the original. Right. It excludes every other sequel, including Halloween 2, which takes place the same night and confirms that Laurie and Michael Myers are brother and sister. That is true for most of the other sequels. That's not true for this film. Um, right. So this I, is only a sequel to Halloween. I believe I believe that you said that um, some people jokingly refer to this movie as H4O as opposed to the 1998 yeah. H2O, yeah. Um, which does uh, take into account that that Michael and Laurie are siblings. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, I, there's there is a line early on in this movie where one of the where one of the kids is just sort of dismissively like, oh, that's a that's an urban legend. They're not really uh, they're not really brother and sister. People just said that to kind of explain what's going on. And 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 that line kind of, um, you know, that people are trying to explain what's going on between Michael and Laurie seems like a recurring theme in this movie. So I think I think one of the defining aspects of Halloween 2018 is that it is a return to a series that has so much baggage. And when I mention Halloween multiverse, all these different possible timelines, this is, I think, the fifth Halloween timeline that all sort of take as granted that the first film is real. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's all these other ones where it's like, oh, Laurie dies in a car accident, but then her niece starts getting chased by Michael. And then another one is like, oh, none of that happened, but Laurie went in hiding and changed her name. And then another one is, well, this is the Rob Zombie verse. So we are going into Michael Myers origin story and, you know, and we Mm -hmm. have two films in that. So there's just like all this baggage. And when you're making a movie that's part of this long running franchise that the 
the needle you always have to thread is how do you make a movie that works, but how do you like not turn off the fans, but how do you also not make something so up its ass that like the average audience is just totally disconnected right, from it. Right. The uh, the average person, you know, teenager sitting down in 2018 doesn't want to hear about the cult of Thorn, the uh, Celtic, uh, <laughs> the Celtic cult that is secretly behind all of the Michael Myers murders. Right. So um, I <laughs> think there's a they, lot do of. Do they want to learn the Silver Shamrock song? I do. Um, and we'll we'll do a sing along later in the sh- podcast. <laughs> write to us, TikTok at us, whatever. Do you want to learn the Silver Shamrock song? All right, kitties. Um, <laughs> But uh, so like I think there's a lot of lines in this movie that are about like we got to address the baggage 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 we got to hit that that's done now we got to hit that one that's done that one Uh and like part of the like really I this is a movie I think kind of works like I think it is like a horror movie that's scary I think I was pleasantly surprised I was going into this expecting a complete shit show Mm -hmm. um, especially given the um especially given the reputation of the third david gordon green yes. halloween movie which is lambasted in every corner of the internet mm-hmm. um but i was pleasantly surprised i mean it doesn't hold a candle to the original but what does right it's a solid movie yeah um in a, in a lot of different respects I, but i think there is a sort of fundamental disconnect that is just sort of like this movie has to exist as the 15th Halloween movie or whatever, Mm -hmm. but in its world, it's only the second Halloween movie. Right. And so this is actually not that interesting of a true crime story. A guy escapes and he kills a mechanic and takes that mechanic's truck. And then he kills like four other people. Right. That's, that's like, that's, that is a story that sticks around the town. Mm-hmm. That's not like an internationally known true crime story that guess, podcasters are trying to uncover 40 years later. I guess a six-year-old killing his older sister with a knife, though, like like intentionally stabbing her, like that's pretty unusual. I, I, I think they hang a lampshade on it. They have the one character just be like, it really, you know, if you think about these days, they don't say the word mass shooting because you don't want to bum people out yeah. during your mainstream <laughs> movie. But like he basically says... You know, like mass shootings happen every third day in yeah. America. Why are we talking about this? And then what everyone else says is, "Because it, it's a movie." Shut up. Yeah, basically. Um, yeah, you, I, I think you're right. This does bring in a little more um, cynicism, which I guess in, in a post-scream world, you do kind of have to, you know, have that in, in your horror film, or, or maybe maybe cynicism is not the right, not the right word. It, it is a little bit more meta. But the reason everything has to be so big and this has to be considered like, wow, Michael Myers is like one of the biggest names in the history of American right. crime is because he's one of the biggest names in the genre of horror. And it's like, right. you have to have the character in the universe match the character in pop culture. I and think, there's a weird disconnect there. I, I could see. So I'm not into true crime so much right me neither but you know when i think about famous serial killers like like who really are alive um like actual serial killers um it seems like so many of them who were caught and who are were known uh had this kind of life and persona after their crimes like you think about um you just think about like like the things that you hear about what they did in prison like like i remember you know um there would be 
random little news stories about Charles Manson in the newspaper when he was alive. Like, oh, he got cable TV in his cell today. Or Charles something. Manson got engaged yeah. to someone via, you know, a pen pal. You yeah, know? yeah, like that exactly, sort of thing. exactly. Or like, like John Wayne Gacy and his clown paintings or like um, I tried watching Mindhunter and like Ed Gein's a big part of that. And the whole thing is like, oh, he's all about like talking about his crimes and building up his persona. And then you have someone who doesn't talk. My, yeah, Michael Myers specifically, they say, is that he got caught that night and then they he got sent to a psych hospital and then nothing has happened with him for 40 years. Yeah. Um, but luckily, there are at least two people who are interested in his story. And they have a friend at the DA who gave them a mask. So they're going to go oh talk. That they are two British podcasters, the most attractive. I mean, uh, present company excluded, oh, the most course. attractive podcasters you'll ever see. I mean, if you're a casting director with poor taste, I guess those guys would be the most attractive <laughs> podcasters. But we all know the truth. Um, That's right, John Hodgman. <laughs> um, Which McElroy will I choose? Gross. Um, so I, I did want to say like. Part of the thing about when you return to an old horror movie uh-huh. is you have to, like, to get the movie made, you as a screenwriter need to pitch it right. to an executive. Right. And one of the things that is going to be really important to an executive, but no one, but important to no one who wants to watch a good horror movie is, but how does it click with today? How do we make it today? Sure. And the answer is, well, we, we just make it good. We just make a good movie and then good movies stand the test of time and people like them and keep watching them. But what a studio executive wants to say is, what if they're retweeting Freddy Krueger? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, there, when you know. it, this, this is a film that's, uh, from Bloomhouse. Uh-huh. um, before it was part of Bloomhouse, it was part of Dimension Films, a, Mir- a Miramax subsidiary. Uh-huh. So this is under the, ra- uh, the reign of Bob, uh, Weinstein. And he is the one who says like, you know what we should do as a follow-up to Halloween H2O? What if there was a Michael Myers reality show? Because it's 2002. Oh, and it's like, and so the idea that this is like a, po- a movie that's like, we really need to honor that original film. The very first people you're going to see and the only movie that exists before the opening credits, uh-huh. podcasters. <laughs> You know, um, they have the same Zoom uh, recorder as we do. By the way, they oh, have that's right. they I have our safe equipment. Yep. I thought that funky little um, that the funky little microphone head. I was I like, I've seen that before. Yeah, I was. Yeah, that was an exciting moment. <laughs> the podcasters. I guess they get the ball rolling, kind of. But you could have the ball rolling anyway. You could. I mean, I mean, the, it is a good reason to have exposition mm-hmm. um, because they definitely do the whole podcaster thing of like, you know, explaining the backstory. Well, I, I guess we don't see them in post. They don't. Well, I guess they don't survive to post production, but. Maybe they put a charming little Les Baxter number uh, under <laughs> under all of their grisly information about his original murders. Um, but they, they do provide the exposition for anyone who doesn't know what they're getting into. Um, but it's but it's so this is a movie. It's nine years after the previous Halloween film. Uh-huh. There is a long torture development process where it fell in. There was a bunch of different scripts fell in and out of hands. They were going to do a sequel to Rob Zombie's second Halloween movie. Mm-hmm. And like it feels like inside of this movie that I think works and is like a scary movie with good characters that you don't want to be killed and so you're scared when they're in danger Mm -hmm. like there is all of this stuff that's just like yeah that feels like it's it's sort of this like vestigial limb from a previous draft or whatever and Mm. to me it's like you don't need to come up with a high concept way to get Michael Myers off of the bus 
that that crashes. Yeah. You don't need a high concept reason for him to like get his mask. Like you did, like mm-hmm. you just just have him do it. Just have him like just have the movie happen. Yeah. And instead, you have these like uh, British podcasters. Though I will say, uh-huh. kudos to David Gordon Green for making the podcasters British because I have always. For as the very first podcast I ever listened to was the Ricky Gervais podcast. Oh, okay. I have always really loved the way that the Brits say podcast. Podcast. Wherever you get your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that's like when you're watching Great British Bake Off, and when, by you I mean me, and <laughs> I get completely it's obsessed with how everyone says chocolate, 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 chocolate. the chocolate butter. Po- Welcome back to the chocolate podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, uh, the podcasters. I I just wanted to bring up the podcasters because it's like, it. I like we we're not gonna we do we're not gonna do a plot synopsis, and we also don't necessarily need to break this down scene by scene. Uh huh. Um. But it's but like there are a few things that where you go. Uh, oh gosh, this is just like this is getting in the way, and yeah, the, I... and the wacky chessboard uh, insane asylum podcast podcaster opening is like i started that when i i saw this in theaters and i really liked it in theaters but like i remember like the first five minutes of this movie thinking oh they fucked it up yeah i I had the exact same reaction because the opening scene where you would expect um an homage to the original or something to really a big like, scare of a, some yeah, sort yeah, so, something to really get you in the mood just just has these these two pretty unlikable characters who you don't know and and also like don't buy as podcasters and therefore you're like so is the rest of this movie gonna feel out of touch and weird yeah and and the the setting uh, you're right the setting that he's in is this weird chessboard. it made me think of that that 60s show the prisoner where, <laughs> where i was like oh are they gonna be like running around wearing bowler hats what's going on here you know it's even more deadly than michael myers a balloon yeah <laughs> And yeah, and then and then the one podcaster is trying to get him to talk, and the way that he tries to get him to talk is by whipping the the mask out of his bag. A friend at the DA gave me this. Did they? Did a friend at the DA <laughs> give you that? Um. Also, it's like in the world of the Halloween 2018. Like, why is the mask a big deal? Like, why? Like, would. He he presents it in the movie as almost like, oh, this is the source of your power because he holds it up and Michael's turned away from him because you, so you can't see his face. Yeah, yeah. He's unmasked in mm-hmm. the prison, but just the, the camera, um, the camera is shooting. Such He's unmasked in the prison, presumably has been unmasked for 40 years. Right. right. Presumably there's a ton of photos of Michael Myers out there without the mask and maybe mugshot, and possibly yeah. zero photos of him wearing the mask, considering <laughs> that he was apprehended that night. Well, um, like, you, I don't think the cops like booked him wearing the mask. Probably not. I mean, it makes sense that it would be an evidence. Also, this is a 40 year old mask like that rubber is going to be like cracked. And very famously, the mask in Halloween 2 that came out in 1981 looked uh-huh. like shit because the original had totally decomposed by the time <laughs> uh, like, f- yeah, three years later. So that that is a remarkable mask. But also in the first film. Michael Myers is not wearing a mask at the insane asylum. Mm-hmm. He steals a car. He kills a mechanic and steals his car. Mm-hmm. And then he breaks into a hardware store and steals a mask. Right. So this is a mask that he had in his possession for like 13 hours, 10 hours. Right. Like what? It, the idea that it's like this big deal. Yeah, where, where it's, it's like he's holding it up behind him and, he, and the podcaster says, you can feel it, can't you? And then 
he's he's chained up in this like courtyard which again is is tiled like a chessboard and there are other inmates of the supermax prison who are chained up in a similar fashion and they all start doing the like the most uh, warmed over typical kooky insane inmate they all get their ninth configuration yeah they all get their one thing one guy says figaro (laughs) yeah yeah it made me think of um Shock corridor. Yes, it's very <laughs> shock corridor. Uh, no nymphos, sadly, but no, other than no that, uh, pretty faithful. Um, there's there's one uh, there's one guy where they're like, oh, make sure that you tie your shoelaces because he's very particular about that, and they never go back to it. And he's holding an umbrella, and it's like, well, if this guy gets his umbrella, why doesn't Michael get his mask? He's obviously, you know, not causing any trouble. He's not trying to like start a prison strike. Presumably he hasn't. Talk to presumably hasn't started any trouble in forty years. Yeah, let him have his mask. Don't be cruel. Maybe it's like phrenology and they all have a very specific skull dent that like the air pressure changes when they pull out the mask. And so that's why all the crazy people start screaming. Yeah, that's probably it. Anyway, I bring this up because, again, like it's just it's a good movie with some unfortunate parts, which is so we can get to the good part, which is Jimmy Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode and Judy Greer as Karen and... Uh, uh, Andy Matichek as Allison, Karen's uh, daughter and uh, Laurie Strode's granddaughter, and uh, Will Patton, who plays the deputy, <laughs> and uh, the uh, you know her best friend Virginia Gardner, like her, her dad uh, Ray, played by Toby. It's a Huss. very well acted movie. For I sure. love all the characters. Not all. I love ninety percent of the characters <laughs> in this movie. I th- that's something that that struck me too. Um, you know, I was a little skeptical going into this also because. David Gordon Green uh, has had such a trajectory in his directing career that you don't see that often, um, where he started out sort of doing these indie dramedies and then uh, he he kind of um, switched into like co- comedies, like 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 uh, Pineapple Express and that the night one with Danny McBride and uh, Your Highness, Your Highness, it's and- a weed joke. Oh, oh, yeah. So the weed. So so he goes from like, from like Sundance Channel ass indie dramedies mm-hmm. to stoner comedies mm-hmm. to horror. Right. Um, it it. I was just a little skeptical about his ability to um, you know, actually do a horror movie because he's sort of a. I, I, I would go so far as to call him a dilettante. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, I think that's a good way of putting it. He's also someone who threatened. It seems like this is something that is something he was aiming for. I think his career is like he was tied to Suspiria remakes for a while. He was tied to... Uh-huh. Uh, he is doing a Exorcist legacy sequel um, in the wake of this trilogy of Halloween films that he's made. Mm-hmm. But like, I think he is someone who had been trying to get horror films off the ground for a while before this movie rolled around. Um, but yeah, you don't necessarily look at Snow Angels and go, yeah, I want this guy to direct a slasher movie. But the thing that you do get when you have David Gordon Green making a slasher movie is he is someone who's really focused on like naturalism and like real characters and sort of like shaggy performances and dialogue and he's like he's kind of just in love with whoever's in front of the camera um Mm -hmm. and i think that that is something that really really benefits slasher movies so there's a school of thought that is very cynical that is what you want in a slasher movie is a bunch of assholes because then you can go yay when they get their heads chopped off yeah 
I'm not a fan of that approach. And it's like if you're just in your basement with your friends and you're just drinking and shouting at the TV, then probably that's the kind of slasher movie you should put on. Mm -hmm. But like the ones that actually work, they work because you see Nancy Loomis and PJ Souls and Laurie Strode and you're like, oh my God, they're so cute. I love their little banter. Yeah. Um, You know, you see, you you really invest in the characters Mm -hmm. um, and you, you want them to be okay and that makes it scarier. Yeah. And this is a movie that is very scary specifically because the chemistry that all of the people involved have is so good. Yeah. Yeah. That did feel like um, a tie to the original because in, in both of them, you, you have these hangout moments, which in some slasher movies feel interminable. Cause it's like, I don't care about these kids who are like all drinking beer, except for the one who doesn't want to drink beer. And the other one's making fun of them because they don't drink beer. And it's just like, okay, but even even if nothing really happened that night, I feel like you could take these characters and these performances and, and still get like an interesting movie. Yeah, you know? that little kid that uh, Allison's friend is oh babysitting. Oh my God, he's so cute. <laughs> what a cute fucking kid. He's so funny. <laughs> uh, Julian, played yeah. by Jabrail Nantambu, and I apologize if I'm uh, mispronouncing that, but uh, that, it, that to me is like, oh man, David Gordon Green made a slasher movie. Yeah. <laughs> Improvisational, yes. um, too, in in a lot of the in a lot of the scenes, especially just like letting the kids goof around with each other. Um, the scenes in in the high school where where they're just sort of like, you know, you know, like it's like oh, the the two boys who are, are best friends and one's going to kiss the other, and it's like oh, haha, we're we're not gay kind of thing. Where it, they just feel like teenager ass teenagers. Yeah. Um. But they're but yeah. Um. It it did it did kind of feel like like a little bit of a throwback to like a Pineapple Express kind of thing where it's just sort of like like oh just like sit down and ad lib and hang out with each other um, and those moments did kind of bring a some some levity um, where it was a, a comfort where you do kind of get a second to to laugh but at the same time it's like oh no these characters don't know don't know what they're gonna get into um, this might have been one of the only movies where I. F- really felt bad for the cops like there's like there's those two cops who um like like the two partners who were sitting in their squad car and one is like i he's he's and one of them is like so happy because he's a foodie and he went to the vietnamese restaurant and got a bond me for his partner and his partner wants nothing of it could not care less thinks it sounds gross um and just them kind of riffing back and forth and we building should say this one of the co-writers is danny mcbride yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> it, it definitely had that that kind of feeling to it um where it was just like, oh, I would, I would watch more of, of these two guys. I mean, of course, they get k- killed horribly yeah. within the within five minutes, and you know that's coming. Um, but it it just stood out to me as so different from something like Scream, where Scream is funny, but it's in like like it's the complete opposite end of the spectrum, where it is this like really slick, polished wit where mm-hmm. it feels like there were a bunch of like late night writers sitting around being like and then what if dewey says cowabunga man or <laughs> that's not clever but, but you know what i mean it's kevin williamson as yes. Daw- it's like my my pen has been sharpened on dawson's creek and like we're cutting edge banter is how i have <laughs> cutting you know, edge banter like cowabunga like cowabunga <laughs> um it's uh, at some point someone says tubular and does a little hang 10 it's, yeah you know yeah. all you of know, the things you know wit yeah <laughs> yeah, the things you associate with the late '90s. Um, but yeah, I like. I think, like specifically, the scariest sequence in this movie, to me at least, is mm-hmm. um, when Allison's friend is babysitting the the kid, 
and the kid is doesn't want to go to bed, but he goes to bed, and then he yeah. comes running out because something's in his closet. Yeah. And you, it's you think like, about Tommy and the Boogeyman from the first movie, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's 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 like oh, but Tommy sort of didn't have to interact. Like Tommy was never really in the same room as as right. Michael Myers. But right. like this poor little kid, you're like, oh my god, no, there's something in the closet. Don't please. And then uh, and her boyfriend is there, and and he's like. What's that? Ghost and Goblin's little buddy? Like he's like this he's like this affable stoner, but yeah. he's like still just sort of being a little bit mean to the little kid. Yeah, yeah. And the little kid goes, Shut up, Dave. <laughs> and it's like and it's like, oh no. I it's like it's this seeking sensation that one, Michael Myers is absolutely fucking in his closet. Yeah. And two, I don't want any of these people to die because I like them all. Especially earlier in the movie. A kid gets it. Yeah, like, no, that's true. They like do. You, they you do say early on. See Michael Myers like like break a kid's neck. The first the first child you see die is a gay child, <laughs> or he likes dancing. But I I think he's supposed to be coded as gay. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, so it's yeah, it's like this. It's like this preteen. Oh my god, this scene. That scene killed me. So. It's it's the it's the Michael Myers has escaped scene. It's it's sort of analogous to the to Loomis and the, and the nurse in the first movie where where they're driving in the thunderstorm and they see all the uh, inmates wandering around in the rain. And it, this is um this is like pre dawn. Uh, a dad and his child are going hunting, and they're having a conversation where. Um, where the kid Lumpy, as the dad calls him, Lumpy is saying that uh, he likes dance classes and he wants to continue pursuing dance classes. And his dad's saying like, well, it's still important to me that you go hunting and fishing with me because that's our quality time. And they're having like a, a pretty natural, grounded in, even interesting conversation. The little kid has like a very unique voice. Like he's yeah. got kind of a raspy, husky voice yeah. for a preteen kid. Yeah, I, I, I and the then, casting is just like yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, it's there. so good. And then and then they come across the 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 bus from the from the state hospital in the ditch, and they they both get it. They both get it. And you see the kid. You see you see Michael Myers break the kid's neck. He specifically was, gets it the same way that uh, Annie um, Annie gets it yeah, in the first film. Yeah. which is funny because I found her. Uh, I found Annie's death in the first film. Um, the the lead up to it, where he's like where he's like attacking her in the car is very upsetting but her actual death like she basically like lets her tongue loll out and rolls her eyes and it's just it's such a letdown but oh god lumpy dying just just tore my heart out it was it was oh it's really um it's not it's not the most gruesome kill of the movie but it, it is the most heartrending. and it is like we are we're not messing around yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, and and also there's a there's a moment later on. There's a I, I have to say, as someone who has seen like five hundred slasher movies and like has little like dreams like if I made a slasher movie, it'd be like this or whatever. Yeah. Like one thing I've always thought would be really cool in a slasher movie is like they a lot of them take place in suburbia, but they don't really emphasize how close houses are. They're always sort of like isolated somehow. Yeah. It would be amazing if someone killed someone and then went next door and killed someone there too. Yeah. And there's this amazing one take shot where Michael Myers kills someone, gets her kitchen knife, and then kills the person next door. And it's like Halloween and you're just like, I guess he's just going door to door like a fucking trick-or-treater killing everybody at every house yeah um and in that scene where he kills the woman in the kitchen to get her knife mm -hmm. um first like way it's staged and shot that's like that's the moment where i was like 
oh, David Gordon Green can do a horror movie. Yeah. This yeah. is, I have faith in him and in the way he constructs and stages these scenes. It was a surprisingly elegant sequence, especially because I found the editing to, in most places, in most of the action sequences specifically to be very off-putting. Just, I, I thought the camera work was very choppy. It had no rhythm. It, it just seemed like it, w it would cut to things and it wasn't really like really? efficient, elegant storytelling. I mean, I mean, not to me. Um, I, I mean, usually, can you think of like an example? There, there's at least one or two shots of like just like a character like going up a staircase, and they cut like three different times. Sure, and it's like, sure, why do sure. You need that it doesn't it doesn't look good. It's not it's not building any kind of tension. It's just making it look jumpy. And and why do you and 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 there's not this isn't. This isn't about jumpiness. This is about quiet and still. And it it felt it felt very out of touch with, um, the the whole feeling of the Halloween franchise and like and like what's so special and what's so scary about it. Um, but yeah, that sequence it's it's so elegant. I mean, especially um, go the going next door and the entire thing is just shot through the uh, the living room picture window. Um, the only th and the only thing I didn't like about it is it it sort of turns him into this like killing machine because I kind of feel like in the in the original movie uh, there's more of a psychology to his kills where it's like even if you don't know exactly why Michael Myers does what he does and there is this sense of you know is he the boogeyman and he is just like 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 evil in a human suit or is he like like a a person who has some sort of um psychological you know mechanism that we just don't understand but but he's a human and and there's that sort of mystery to him um so it's like oh so it's like when he kills in the original movie it's either um because of necessity like killing to get the Mechanics the, jumpsuit the mechanics in the truck. Jumpsuit in the truck, um, you know, things like that. Uh, or it's like, oh, he's going after babysitters. He's going after like young women who are claiming their sexuality, like his sister did, and and going after their boyfriends. And and it's this whole like like ritualization of this horrible night from when he was six. And isn't that fucked up? But now he's just kind of like going in like yeah. stabby stab stab stab. There's and, a there's a funny there's a funny moment uh, where it's. You know, he like they they talk about the original crime, obviously, and it's like the night he killed five people, and yeah. then like within fifteen minutes of them saying that, it's like he's killed seven people now. <laughs> Is this the same guy? I think that's just <laughs> one of those. Michael Myers never speaks, but if he did, he would say, "Hold my beer." Yeah, there's a uh, there. I think that's just like I. There was never a version of a modern Halloween movie where he kills five people, right? Um, I think I. I mean, so I think a thing that. John Carpenter doesn't get a lot of credit for in the original Halloween is that Michael Myers sort of walks this thin line between like urban legend boogeyman yeah. and like a real guy with a real psychology and a real yeah. history and a past. Yeah. And like there's parts of him where he feels supernatural and there's parts of him where he just feels like some random guy. Yeah. And he's able to milk the most scary part of both of those angles. Right. <laughs> and any given moment, it feels like they're different things. Uh -huh. And he and it's just sort of like really leaning into the inscrutability and of all that. And that's just something that you can't do once there's been 15 of them. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. just like, and then adding in a podcaster to narrate <laughs> that, that even further puts a bead on what you're looking at. And, and it really takes the mystery out of it. So, so, so the, so the podcasters are driving and, uh, the, the one of them is, uh, is speaking into his tape recorder and getting all of his brilliant 
thoughts for his producer to edit later. And he's talking about how Michael and Lori are like two sides of the same coin. And, and because of the violence, they're, they're both isolated and they're both waiting and they both have to confront each other and just making it this whole, um, this whole thing, but it's being spoon fed to you in a way that is just like, okay, I guess I've just been told how to view this movie. So I guess that's how I'll see it. Where the film itself even does that um, without telling you a thing where they bring back the English class scene where Lori's granddaughter, Alyssa, is sitting like in the same classroom, the same desk, having, you know, the same conversation in class and looking out the window. And instead of catching a glimpse of Michael, she catches a glimpse of Lori. And it's like, oh, that that uh, that callback, but yeah. putting Laurie in Michael's place, it's like, I feel like that tells you more than any sort of like narration could. So uh, we've we've talked about the things that work a little bit. I can we can now dip back into something that doesn't work and is also just like this didn't need to happen. Like you didn't need to. Well, it was necessary to get from point A to point B. It's like totally unnecessary, which is Michael's doctor who follows in Loomis's footsteps. He's a crazy person who murders a police officer because he's like the puppet master who let him loose in the, in the bus. And like, he's, he's twisted because he's been staring into the abyss and it stared back at him. And like, all of that is terrible. I think the, it comes out of nowhere it's a really bad performance because the character is just so poorly justified. And yeah. I think him and the podcasters both exist for a certain reason, which is David Gordon Green saying, "You." it almost feels like them pointing at the, a section of the fan base that's like, you want the explanation. You want the mythology. Right. You want the reason. You want to know the five people behind the reason. And you want to know the reasons why each five person did yeah. the thing. Because you're a dork on the internet or whatever. <laughs> and like that's how you consume something is by theorizing and speculating. And then eventually your speculations become your pet theories and all that. And like he is inscrutable. That is, the thing about him is that he's inscrutable. And trying to explain why and he does what he does mm-hmm. is like you can't. You can't control this thing right he just so like they're trying to do so i think this is a movie that is trying to like make that point but then also it's a movie that exists in a trilogy and spoiler alert michael Myers is not inscrutable <laughs> um, and it's also and it's just like it it it's it's an unnecessary tactic that is uh gets in the way of the thing that works. Uh-huh. Um, but I think that's why they do it, like it, thematically a, speaking. So I, you're, you're more familiar with the franchise than I am, but it, it sounds like just from what you've you've said that there are other movies in the franchise that do come down on one side or the other of like, of tend to leaning a little more like, oh, Mike, Michael's a supernatural force versus Michael's a, um, a, a, a human being and, and his psychology has driven him to that. Yeah, so so the story of the making of Halloween is that the first movie is like a classic and it just sort of came out the way it did. And John Carpenter didn't want to do a sequel mm-hmm. and it was also 1978, so it wasn't a given that there would be a sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Friday 13th happened and there was this land rush for movies that were ripping off Halloween because Friday 13th was the most successful Halloween ripoff ever. And the people who own the rights to Halloween were like, well, let's not be stupid here. Let's make a sequel. And we know that John Carpenter has gone on to other success. This is now the, not just the man who did Halloween, but it's the man who did Halloween and The Fog and Assault and uh, Escape from New York. And like, mm-hmm. like we should probably, in good faith, like get him involved. 
So he did the score for Halloween 2. He wrote the script. He had to do something. He kind of mm-hmm. didn't want to make the movie in the first place, but he had to add something to it. Right. So he goes, well, what if he did it because they are secretly brother and sister and Sam Hain, which I say Sam Hain because Sam Hain is how the... the, uh-huh. the, the what, what is the actual pronunciation? Samhain. Samhain. Um, the the, uh, the pagan holiday is consistently pronounced Sam Hain in all of the sequels. Whatever. Point is, when you make a sequel to a movie, you can't... You can't capture, like, Halloween captured lightning in a bottle. Right. You can't set out to capture lightning in a bottle. Every bad movie you've ever seen is the result of a lot of talented people working very hard to try to make a good movie. Right. So the idea that it's like, we'll keep things inscrutable forever, it's just, it's not feasible if you're a producer who's trying to lead a successful horror franchise. Mm-hmm. So what you do every time is, well, we'll add something new and we'll get people back in the seats to... To buy mm-hmm. with the promise of explaining something they didn't realize before, mm-hmm. and it and it colors the way they think about whatever. Um, so, and that's just sort of the nature of all the cruft, uh, and that is, I think. David Gordon Green, when you make a legacy sequel that's like, no, only the original exists because that's a classic. Mm-hmm. You're kind of saying, and therefore my movie is going to stand beside it, unlike those other movies. Yeah. And I think you are kind of like pointing at the other movies and, and sort of trying to make your personality, I'm not them. Which is funny because this is Halloween H2O. Ultimately thematically uh-huh. this is Laurie strode dealing with her trauma it, it became a hilarious meme about uh jamie lee curtis using the word trauma in interviews while more and more every sequel i think i think she <laughs> said the word trauma every third sentence by the time she got to uh, halloween ends um and it's like this is about someone who went through a traumatic experience and about confronting trauma and as a sort of faceless boogeyman michael Myers stands in for all trauma and it's like yeah that's halloween h2o you are in fact doing it again this seems like um this does take the the laurie strode of halloween h2o and bring her to an even grimmer place though i mean i guess she's had another 20 years to kind of uh stew um so in in halloween h2o um she's she had faked her death i guess that's retconning her death in a previous movie Mm -hmm. um so in in halloween h2o um she she fakes her death she's living under an assumed name um she has a she she's working in a in a school she's a an english teacher or something uh, at this like prestigious high school and uh her son is uh, a, a cute teenager who's a student of the school and um but but she's having these awful nightmares about Michael Myers. Um, you know, she talks about having a, a troubled marriage that uh, that ended, and um, she also has a, a substance abuse uh, problem. Right. And so, like, I remember even when I first saw this movie and walked out of the theater, going like, "Wow, they really did it! This one was great." Um, I remember like rolling my eyes at all of the trauma stuff in this movie okay. because it's like, "Yeah, that's Halloween H two O." Also, that's Rob Zombie's Halloween too. Also, that's Scream 3. Also, that's Scream 4. Um, the thing I didn't think about, which is so obvious, but only occurred to me this most recent time watching it, uh-huh. is what it actually is, is Terminator 2. They yeah, just made her Linda yeah. Hamilton. Yeah. Linda Sarah Connor has trauma, 
And she is go- working through her trauma by trying to become the sort of person who it could never happen to again. That's the whole premise of Terminator 2. James Cameron got there like 35 years before you did. <laughs> As part of preparing for this episode, I um, I just went back to uh, Scream 4 uh, and I and I said, well, what are the what are the rules of like the the lega sequels and the and the reboots? And because uh, because Scream Four is the one where we meet like it, it doesn't actually end up being Scream the Next Generation, but that was their first attempt at like Scream the Next Generation, where it's like uh, like Sydney's cousin play, played by Emma Roberts um, is is you know kind of pa- like getting the bata- getting the baton passed to her sort of, um, and uh, so. In Scream 4, they talk about the rules of reboots, and one of them is new versions are always 2.0, so the latest technology is always involved and integral to the plot. And the rules of Scream do kind of exist in the movie to set up what's going to happen in the movie and things to look out for in that movie. So they're not as universal as like Randy would have you believe. I mean, I mean the first one obviously isn't the the first one's obviously just like what really caught on with fans. Mm -hmm. And and so that, that becomes like like a tradition. Great example. Like Jamie Lee Curtis smokes weed in that first Halloween movie. Right. Right. She lives. You can do drugs and live in a slasher movie. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, And there's always, there's always exceptions and all that, but yeah. But the reason that I bring up, you know, new versions are always 2.0 is, you know, it starts with the podcasters and I was like, Oh, I guess that kind of counts. But then I was thinking to myself, this this Laurie Strode is like prepper Laurie Strode. She's very oh, much she's sure. like a Laurie Strode. I mean, I, I I don't I hate to put it this way, but she's kind of a Laurie Strode for the Trump era, you know, where it's <laughs> it's like she's living in the woods by herself. She has um she just fucking shoots her guns all mm-hmm. day. Um, you know, she's bitter against the government because they took her daughter from her who right. she was trying to raise to be just like her, right. and she is getting ready for um, the threat that she absolutely knows is going to come for her in her compounds, even though everyone else around her tells her, <laughs> no, the world is a more tolerant. I mean, you have Judy Greer in the beginning of the movie being like, I went to therapy. I unlearned all of this paranoia that my mother taught me to embody. And she's even you know, saying to Lori, she's like, no, people are kind. The world's a good place. Uh And then she's proven wrong. That's another weird thing about this movie is it's like it it is it presumes to be about like the psychology and the psychological effects of trauma. Mm -hmm. And then it presents a character who has all of those things and then did all of the things that every doctor tells you you should do. And then came out the other end of it being like, oh, okay, I have a really healthy life and I have like a great daughter and I have like a really cool husband and everything's fine. And the movie's going, but that's not right. Yeah. (laughs) You should actually hold on to your trauma with all your fucking might because that's the only thing that's going to save you. You know, it's like, um, I I was watching this movie and I was wondering, like, at what point is Lori, does Lori's life become not worth it? You know, where it's like, I get, I get where it's like, she feels the need to protect, to protect her daughter. And that I I can't imagine what kind of impetus that is in a parent Mm -hmm. to protect your child Mm -hmm. and, and to, and for them to protect their child and you to protect your grandchild. Um, but just the way that that she just like leans into completely destroying her life and cutting herself off from her family um like it, it just seems like a pyrrhic victory you know where it's it's like you you th- this was your whole life was preparing for one night which would be a fascinating movie 
but it is a mainstream horror movie. It's literally just called Halloween. You can't get any more mainstream than that. Yeah. As far as it's uh, horror movies, especially these days, are sort of defined by the Bloomhouse model of it's like low budget, a couple name stars, don't spend a lot of money. It's not a big Pro, high profile thing right halloween 2018 is a big high profile thing and the one thing they're not going to let you do is leave without catharsis yeah so it's so it's like there's a version of this where michael myers burns up and then we get another 10 minutes of Lori trying to connect to her family and she's just too fucked up it's like the searchers where it's yeah. just like the thing that it she is needed like the to searchers. It, well it could have been like the searchers it could have been like the instead searchers. it's uh john wayne gets a group hug from yeah. Natalie Wood and everybody. Yeah, and they're like, true. thank God you were racist, John Wayne. And he's like, I know, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I could see how... So I think that there is a stab, let's call it, at, at, a, at a feminist message in this movie. Sure. Um, where it's about, um, you know, Lori is a, is a survivor and she knows what's going on and she knows what she needs to do to do to stay safe and she passes it on to her daughter and her daughter doesn't really pass it on to the granddaughter but the granddaughter is um oh but allison is still uh she's smart she's resourceful um you know she's also a survivor so you yeah. get the sense of like oh you know three generations of powerful women and they've trapped michael myers and, and they've they've done it they've they've uh they've you know banded together to and to, it takes all three of them it is not yeah it is not the movie ends with a showdown where laurie strode defeats michael myers thus saving her daughter and granddaughter yeah. it is a movie where laurie strode and karen and allison are all necessary in order to finally defeat michael yeah. myers yeah so there is a satisfaction in that sure and, and there is um there's a version of this movie that wants to be that's not michael myers that's just a figure of a man and this is about women yeah. conquering that man that is right. the boogie man you know what i mean yeah but like it's just but it's also the movie with the podcasters and the movie with the crazy doctor and yeah. it's the movie that has like little sly references to a million different sequels and it's like like it's just one of those things where there's so much baggage was there a particular sly reference to a sequel that was noteworthy to you so there's this character who pops up who kind of is unexplained and i don't think any of the sequels really give him any more depth but he's he's sort of this sheriff who comes in with a cowboy hat and he's got this big entrance oh, yeah. and, he, and you never find like out keith david energy yeah he's got like big like don't worry the star of the movie has a, i'm in one more scene okay never mind <laughs> um so he walks in and this is like when will Patton is trying to interview the doctor who, who staged the bus crash but we don't uh -huh. know yet and he's he got shot by the little kid and they're in the hospital and they're like, Michael Myers escaped or whatever. And the guy, the guy in this cowboy hat, he's not really making a big deal of it. He kind of just goes, what are we going to do? Cancel Halloween. Yeah. And that's kind of, I think, I can't remember if it's five or six, but like one of those sequels, it's like, we haven't been allowed to celebrate Halloween for like a decade. We finally are going to get loose because they have unbanned oh, okay. Halloween. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And it's, I think that might be like a, a curse of Michael Myers or something like that. <laughs> it should have, I think that should have been a really on the nose Jaws reference and he should have come in wearing a blazer patterned with pumpkins. That would have been very good too. <laughs> As you know, Haddonfield means friendship. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, and, and again, as someone who isn't really well-versed on the sequels, but watched uh, the 1978 Halloween in preparation for this, I did notice uh, quite a few. I mean, I mean it, it is, it is uh, 
very engaged in being an homage to that movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. Even even down to the um particularly notable being the score that uh that John Carpenter co-composed mm-hmm. and is such a callback to the original. There were moments where I was like, are they just straight up recycling the music? But uh, you said that they they did. No, they so. re-recorded every time, but they definitely they it's like part of part of the advantage of making a, a slasher movie that takes place in the Halloween franchise is you get to use the best slasher movie music ever. Right. So it would be kind of crazy if they did a score that didn't have that at some point. Right. I think the farthest away they ever get from that is like maybe Halloween H two O because that was like right in the midst of Scream uh, Mania uh-huh. and so they went really hard on the Marco Beltrami like Scream score and stuff okay um, yeah there's a whole other story about how the score got messed around with by the Weinsteins which again this is me putting on the brakes and not telling that <laughs> anecdote but um, yeah you're definitely I think I think one of the smart things this movie does is it goes what we don't need is the score from 1978 but bigger with a full orchestra mm-hmm. and a string section going von 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 <laughs> like it does sound like kind of fucked up and electronic in a way that is is cool and i think uh-huh. i think i think the score is pretty good in this oh, again yeah, like no, i thought i thought it was very good i mean i mean if i thought it was just from the original movie then yeah yeah i think that's a that's actually a compliment <laughs> i mean i it was a, it was a very cynical package but what, what a about the sequence with the motion activated lights where it goes oh my god that's it was so good. The wah was something that I don't think is going to stand the test of time because it feels very like late teens kind of score. Um, but that whole sequence I thought was was amazing with the boyfriend's best friend gets killed by Michael Myers in someone's backyard and there's a motion sensor light in the backyard that just clicks on and clicks off at the most like dramatically appropriate moments. And it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, my, I, it kind of made me think of um, when I go to visit my parents and they have a motion sensor light in the backyard and uh, they, they live in the woods. So it'll turn on at a random, at a, you know, at any kind of thing, you know, it could be a squirrel. It could be the, the dog went out to pee. It could be, you know, but uh, you know, I'll just be, you know, sitting up, at midnight, um, just kind of doing my thing, and, and suddenly the light turns on, and I, I look out, and I just see this like circle of light, and then darkness surrounding it, and I'm just like, well, I hope Michael Myers isn't here to kill me. Does your childhood home have a basement cage uh, with a pilot light and like gas burners? Uh, it was like a crawl space in the attic, but then they renovated in the '80s, so it's not there anymore. All right. Well, I guess you are dead. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> have, have fun in New York, Reg. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I did want to talk about one thing that surprised me this reviewing. Uh-huh. I'd seen this like three or four times before and it was a movie I thought I knew pretty well. It was a movie I was like, it was the first time I was like, you know, I could potentially do a whole podcast on this movie without rewatching it. Mm-hmm. But this is the first time I watched it through the lens of Judy Greer. Oh, sure. Who I never thought much about her performance. She's really good in yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Um, as like, she, Judy Greer, as as we both well know, like she's kind of like that white lady. So like you catch Sir Judy Greer as suburban mom. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, of course Judy Greer can be a suburban mom. Yeah. That's her type. You know, like it's, it's always interesting when she goes outside the type, but something that she can do with her eyes closed is like, I'm a suburban mom. Yeah. Yeah. Like, is that like, <laughs> don't forget your lunch. Yeah. Meeting her character while she's making breakfast. Yeah. That's, that's Judy Greer. Yeah. Um, but like when she has to be scared, she 
And that's a, that's tough. That's like one of those mm. things, like not every actor can be really scared. Right. Not every actor can be frightened. That's like a really visceral, physical, emotional sort of a thing to perform. And it's like the ones who do it really well, they're the reasons they become scream queens or whatever is yeah. because you, it's like, wow, that's not everyone has that talent. And like, there's a great moment in this where she has been sort of whisked away into the safety of the basement as Lori is walking through this house, trying to like with a tactical shotgun, kind of clearing rooms, trying to figure out how Michael got in and where he is. Um, and she's panicking and she hears like struggle and she hears a shotgun blast and she just sort of like cries out or like almost crying. She's like, mom, like she, yeah. like she, cause she just can only imagine what's happening up there. Yeah. Doesn't hear anything for a while. Then she hears her daughter and she's like, she doesn't know where Michael Myers is, but she knows that he could be like her daughter's a moment from being destroyed. Yeah. And like her panic and her like worry and her calling out to her daughter and trying to get her inside in the basement, and everything. It was just like, it was so good. Mm, yeah. Oh God. Yeah. That whole beast, that, that, that whole basement sequence, amazing performance. I remember, um, in one of our very first episodes, you brought up, uh, the very end of that sequence, uh, where, um, she's, uh, where, where the basement has been opened and, and Michael is somewhere in the kitchen and she and her, her daughter are in the basement and she's yelling for Lori and she, for help. And she's saying, help me. I'm scared. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. And then Michael kind of pops his head up around the corner and then she just said, she just freezes and says, gotcha and shoots him in the face. And because we had that discussion, I knew that moment was coming, but it still felt like such a triumph because just the way that she turns on a dime, her, her whole build, uh, the, the way that she builds up during that sequence is just so good. Um, there's also the the sort of uh, conflicting emotions that she has earlier in the movie where it's like she really cares about Lori and she's concerned for her well-being, but she's also trying to set these healthy boundaries and, um, you know, it, and, and keep it together in front of her daughter because she has to be, you know, the mom um, that also really felt heartbreaking where you kind of, you kind of hear that, that concern coming through her voice, uh, you know, where she's saying, mom, I thought you stopped drinking. And it's, it's this, you know, um, this moment where you can tell that there's a lot in her saying that, but they're in a restaurant, so she can't really let it out. You know, the, the real conflict that comes up for that character it's it's really I wonder what this movie would have been like if we had gotten more scenes with Karen and if, if it had been more from Karen's uh, perspective and more about um, how she's been affected th these last 40 years and, and what it's like to be, you know, Laurie Strode's daughter. You get you get a short sequence. Yeah. Um, to to kind of suggest that um, she was like trained to be this like, you know, anti Michael Michael that anti michael myers do they get to drink on that no okay um <laughs> that you know um you, you do get this short sequence where you see that Lori has trained her to be this you know um the survivalist this warrior from a very young age and and loses custody because of it um but it's it's really minor. You really only only get the the very basics of their their relationship, um, and that feels like it would have been a much richer vein to mine. I mean, I mean, of course, like you know, charming teenagers being charming, which is fine, but 
it feels it feels like the the Karen Lori relationship is where like the emotional weight is to this movie. I I think that I would take more of that in lieu of anything involving podcasters. <laughs> like it's like what if we could delete those twelve minutes of the movie? Yeah, and and like instead do more of that. Like but like Karen in a therapy session. But like this is also a movie where I'm like. It's already like a little too bloated and God, like I, I definitely would not take long. any additional scenes. Yeah. Um, uh, Does Allison's boyfriend survive? I guess we'll just have to watch the sequels and find out oh. more of the night he came home again. Because I felt their whole relationship was not interesting and just took up a lot of time. You're right, but I will also say that the way that scene at the dance specifically plays out with him being drunk and not stopping someone from kissing him. Right. And, and like, obviously she gets mad, but also, like, it would have been very easy for him to de-escalate, but because he's drunk, he instead gets more belligerent and mm-hmm. he, like, gets super defensive and he lies about what she even saw. Uh-huh. And, like... The way he, like, steals her phone and throws it in the punch bowl. And, like, by the way, that's why she doesn't have a cell phone. They have to deal with cell phones in these movies now. Right, right. Um, like, I thought the the way all of that specifically plays out was, like, that is a teenage boy. Like, I, yeah. I really bought that. Yeah. And that was just, that was one thing. I do think there is a weird um, sort of, he's from the wrong side of the tracks. That yeah. angle that never gets, <laughs> never gets really His pulled on. His dad is Lonnie. <laughs> Lonnie. <laughs> Get you at well, well. We will hear more about him and his dad and his family when we return to Halloween Kills. But really? we, we really oh, will. Man. There is a there's an answer that is the deleted scene from this movie, which I think is that he survives in one way, and uh-huh. then there is a deleted. There is the answer that is in the sequel, which is a different thing, which we'll find sure, out. sure, which we will find out in Halloween 2024, unless we get a cease and desist letter from Judy Greer. So I do want to say part of this is I have a sort of a theory of slasher movies. Okay. And not all slasher movies are structured this way. Slasher movies can be any number of things. Uh-huh. But a very common structure of slasher movie is there is movie A, which is we are young and we are dumb and we are full of something and <laughs> we are in the prime of life and we have beer and we have music and we have sex and we're having a great time. It's a sex comedy. It's Porky's. It's like Ski Patrol or whatever. It's right. like a beach movie. Right. And then there's movie B, which is if we don't get this guy who escaped out of the mental institution, like this is going to go very poorly. Yeah. And eventually the guy who escaped from the mental institution kills enough of the people in movie A uh-huh. that they can't actually continue the plot. So every Friday 13th <laughs> movie you've ever seen, someone's like, I'm a virgin. Yeah, well, you got to lose it sometime. Yeah, but I don't know. Is he the right guy? Maybe you don't need the right guy. He seems nice enough. I'm going to... Nope, we don't get a conclusion to that because nice guy got an axe in the head and virgin got an axe in the head shortly after. Right. Like, that is how slasher movies work is they... One, they just have to have something... Like, you can't just have a movie that's people being killed for 80 minutes. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to have other things that happen. And so you just have people, like, playing around. But, like, part of it is... In theory, when it works, when it's done well, is build anticipation by getting you invested in these things, and then you feel betrayed when you see them die, and then it makes their deaths more affecting and more scary. It's the thing we talked about with, I like the characters, I don't want I don't want the babysitter, I don't want her dumb boyfriend, I, don't, I definitely don't want this little kid to get hurt by Michael Myers, but I know we just spent eight minutes watching them, so at least two of them are getting it. Yeah. Um, and I, so I think like, 
it works to set up something that is ultimately not intended to be paid off because what you are doing is spinning plates and you're like keeping your it's it's uh and i definitely see what you're saying where you have you have a slasher movie you need the audience has that expectation of there's going to be some like you know young attractive people engaging in hedonism and and their own little petty dramas and then they all get chopped up um but this movie has this very unique situation where there's there is a legacy and there is um this this build up you know both in the world of the movie and in our world saying like okay well what what would Laurie Strode be like 40 years on and you know this is a character who we know and and, and this is a situation that we know about and you know what what does the aftermath of that all look like and it just it just feels like <laughs> uh it might not be a I guess what I'm saying is, what if you made an Ingmar Bergman movie and they all got chopped up? I mean, well, you're not like there are slasher movies that are character driven and that mm-hmm. all of the scenes that aren't people getting killed are scenes that are adding depth to the characters. Like uh, I, this is a matter of taste, ultimately. Sure. Like I am someone who really, really likes the no low to no stakes teen petty drama of it all. <laughs> and I, in fact, like that often more than the reheated, uh, I went through a traumatic thing and now I got to be tough, like Laurie Strode <laughs> stuff. But like, if you want to see a slasher movie that's like about really strong characters and every scene is about sort of mm-hmm. adding depth to those characters, like more continuing in the legacy of, of a psycho or something like that. Like, like there's something like Alice Sweet Alice is like one of those movies mm-hmm. where it's like really incredible interpersonal family dynamics, uh, like troubled children and the adult and the divorce and like how the all these like uh you know all these frictions come together and create a scenario where no one is prepared for the murders like mm-hmm. those movies exist too um but i i don't think like i just think this movie was already so heavy in certain yeah. points i really think you need that levity i really think you need a little kid going shut up dave <laughs> And like I and I think like that's why you hire David Gordon Green is mm-hmm. because he can make that stuff, if not feel like consequential, he at least make it feel grounded and believable. Yeah. And it's not just like Crispin Glover and whatever his name is in Friday the 13th Part 4 where they're like, let me put in my little computer in there. Or like they're just telling street jokes or like there's any number of slasher movies where they do this really poorly and you just don't buy anyone as real. Y- yeah, absolutely. Um uh, it, it is it is nice to see a slasher movie where teenagers act and talk like teenagers and look like teenagers. Sure. Um, Though I will say, I was thinking about this because mm-hmm. we watched H2O uh, mm-hmm. after I watched uh, Halloween 2018. We did watch H2O together. Uh-huh. Featuring and, half the main cast of Dawson's Creek. Yes. Michelle Williams uh, survives. We don't get to see her get her head chopped off or anything. But um, I was thinking like, why do they seem like so not teenagers to me? And why do the kids in Halloween 2018 seem like teenagers to mm-hmm. me? And I do wonder if there is something to like, yeah, you were younger than them. So the fact that they were 22, it's like, yeah, well, I'm 14. So they're 22 or they're 18. It's the same thing to me. But now I'm 35. So I look yeah. back and I go, okay, so they're 21. It's basically 17. I think the the kids in Halloween don't look like they've been sitting in hair and makeup for an hour. Yeah. Um, the kids in H2O do. Yes. yes so yes, I yes, think yes. that's that's also a huge difference between like this movie and the sort of more typical 90s aesthetic of H2O. Right. 
um, where there is there is an element I think in a lot of 90s movies where there's like this aesthetic fantasy yeah. um, of like oh what if I had the ability to do my hair like this every morning before school and, and wear this this kind of clothing and it's, you know. it's like a joke where like every single dimension thriller and horror movie for that came out after Scream has the same poster as Scream where it's like six attractive people wearing black turtlenecks with their arms crossed looking at the camera yeah. and it's like hot people also dangerous <laughs> it's a movie go see it <laughs> but yeah like yeah no that's that's absolutely uh something this movie does uh well and that's, and again it's just like i have a real taste for that and yeah. uh i personally am happy that there was that in like those scenes to me, adds so much more in the general overall recipe, the chili that is a slasher movie, mm -hmm. than like a really heavy heart-to-heart -heart scene about like generational strife or whatever. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it would have to be that. I just no, I no, just or, think or it could be a good a version. More interesting character than Allison. I think I, I the yeah. I think the the question to me is, would she be a more interesting character if we saw more of her, or is the empty space allow us to? project and therefore she becomes more interesting because she's a little more mysterious like mm. uh, i mean you know my you know my answer because i want to see more of karen yeah more karen i can't believe i'm saying that on the internet in 2023 um okay well what about this uh-huh what if we found out exactly why Michael Myers did the thing he did and we found uh, we got to have all these scenes with all the people who like distinguish like what he did or what if it was is that the Rob Zombie version no I'm, I'm talking again about like the cult oh, uh, uh -huh. sort of of the sequels or whatever I just mean some characters are more interesting when you give them when you have space to consider them as opposed to be to be told I suppose that's true um I think this is I, a I podcast think, so about Judy Greer being someone who comes in, has five scenes, and adds something to a film that would not have existed if it was someone other than Judy Greer. Mm -hmm. That's true. I, I will point out, though, that um, for the majority of this podcast's history, one of the highest ranked judilization titles that we have is a horror film where she is the lead. That's true. But what is the scene between Jamie Lee Curtis and Judy Greer that you didn't get that you could get that would add something rather than just uh, reiterate the thing you already know about their relationship? I don't know if it's necessarily something between the two of them. Um, I mean, may maybe more more backstory. I have more curiosity about Karen than I do about Allison. Like, if Karen has all this generational trauma, like, why did she choose to stay in Haddonfield if she's been separated from her mother? Like, why not try and find a way out? Is Michael stalking her? Does he go to her first? Can he find her somehow? Does she does she have the sense that she's being stalked? Or is she completely oblivious? Or does she tell herself? Does she have that moment? And then does she second guess and do some like breathing and some affirmation and, and kind of smooth it over and go about her day? And it's the wrong decision because she's actually in danger. Like that, like, I don't know. I, one of my favorite Judy Greer scenes in this movie uh -huh. is when she comes home and she just knows something is off. And she doesn't know That's true. what. That's true. And her hackles are up. Right. And she is just sort of like, she's in the foyer and she's not walking in. She's just sort of calling out, Ray, are, are you yeah. like, like, who's here? Right. Someone's here. Right. And that is training. 
that is that's somewhat, true. and it's that, that to me, and that's and, and it's Lori, and it, what's it's so funny because it's an example of like Lori's a bad mother, not right. because she wanted her daughter to be prepared for the dangers of the world. She's a bad mother because she was so obsessed with herself that she doesn't actually pay attention to the things her daughter is doing well. Right, and that scene ends with her going, "Bang, you're dead. See, you don't even know any." And it's like she doesn't go, "Oh, you knew I was here." Yeah, (laughs) and like so like to me like that's the kind of scene that's like it's the beginning part of a scene that furthers the plot Mm -hmm. but it tells us something about her Mm -hmm. and i think it's a character that's interesting told in that kind of glancing moment or like the scene at the dinner or like her in the basement like i feel like i get the complete karen story Mm -hmm. um through all of that and I'm not saying there couldn't also be good scenes that are as good as anything involving the kids who ultimately get killed off and are therefore not consequential to the ending, mm-hmm. which again, like consequential is, I don't think if you contribute to where the ending is, that means you are or are not consequential. Mm-hmm. A movie is a sequential number, a list of experiences that you mm-hmm. go through and experiencing those characters in those moments at that point in the film has a meaning. But I'm just saying like, the, there could be other scenes with Judy Greer, but I don't I don't lack for Judy Greer in this movie. And that was okay. actually the surprise when I rewatched it. It uh-huh. was like, oh, this is a fully three-dimensional character that I mm-hmm. was not really considering because the movie hasn't stopped and told me she's as important as she actually is. That's true. And and that's why like the first couple of times I watched it, I was like, oh, you know what? That's It's interesting that David Gordon Green cast Judy Greer. I don't think many people would think to cast Judy Greer in this role. There's mm-hmm. nothing pre-2018 where you would point to Judy Greer and say like, yes, you were good. You, you demonstrated that you're the kind of person who can do this, who, you know, in yeah. Halloween, but she can, and she does. Yeah. And, but I don't think I really fully consider the character until I watched this most recent time. And I do think that I got all I need from that. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Do you remember when Michael Myers drops all those teeth on the bathroom floor? Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> That's, oh my, my God. That was like, that was like the one justification for having the podcasters where there's just that like kind of, kind of well-worn territory where it's like woman goes into the bathroom by herself and then H2O scene. And oh, it is. Okay. Remember at the rest stop at oh, H2O. Right, right. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> like um, they're just doing H2O yeah, again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where, uh, where it's like the podcasters stop at a gas station and, and the one podcaster goes into the bathroom and you, you see that you see the, you see the big feet, you see the, the, the hem of, of the jumpsuit walking towards her and, and opening the doors. And then you just see the big hand reach reach over the top and drop a handful of bloody teeth onto the tile floor. They all clatter. Oh my God. And you don't get a good, you don't get a good look at it, but like those are the gas station attendants teeth because his jaw has been torn off. I noticed that. <laughs> I, I absolutely noticed that because that's a huge difference between um, the first movie, which was like shoestring budget indie. So all of the kills are just like, like, knife sticking out of the chest yeah uh as opposed to to this which has some really grotesque special effects the 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 guy's jaw being pulled off (laughs) basically is one of them what about this is a movie that so michael myers kills like 15 people in this fucking movie yeah and like three of them get killed by getting their heads smashed into something over and over again but Everyone has a skull that is the strength of a human skull. So they die from the impact, from the trauma on their brain. 
Except the doctor. The doctor oh, has a skull yeah. that is the consistency of a rotting pumpkin. <laughs> and Michael Myers steps on his head and it turns into a trauma movie where they would put a wig on a watermelon and oh, smash it. Like, that it's was so the most silly. ridiculous moment. That was so stupid. It's, yeah, I mean, he basically curb stomps him and his head just explodes. What were they? I, I think, I, I think a 100% what happened is they had an idea of how it would go. Right. And then it went a different way, which is the way that you would see on TV on, uh-huh. in the movie. And then there was a discussion about should we reshoot something else? Should we shoot some coverage so you don't see it? Because clearly that's a tone breaker. And then David Gordon Green goes, did you see how much all of us laughed when that head smashed? Don't you think the audience wants to feel that too? And they all went, all right, David, you're the guy. And so they kept it in anyway. That is, that is my headcanon of how... Uh, the fucking trauma ass uh, head smash happens in uh, David Gordon Green's actually about trauma Halloween 2018. I, I will I will accept that, especially because because Doctor Sartain is like the most despicable character who gets killed in this movie. Everyone else you kind of feel for, mm-hmm. like you know when when Oscar dies, when Lumpy dies, when the dad dies, you, you kind you kind of feel bad for them. But but he's not he's not a good person. He's he's also pretty pretty despicable and, and conniving like, like you said he's he, there's basically a twist where it's like oh he's michael myers is you know um almost companion where he just wants to turn him loose on society and take notes so i i guess giving him this like really over the top um gross out death is a, a, a minor catharsis uh because most of most of that happens uh within within like that five minutes of like oh i'm evil now and i'm going to kidnap you allison or whatever and i killed a cop which okay okay but you know the rest of everything um and then (laughs) michael myers just stops on his head and it goes everywhere (laughs) oh my god i i did have one last question for you Uh uh-huh because we have already committed that we are going to cover the sequel halloween kills yes (laughs) <laughs> Number one, how do you feel about the title Halloween Kills <laughs> on a scale of one to ten? How enthusiastic? How how much do you want to see a movie called Halloween Kills? That sounds like a PSA from 1983 about razor blades and apples. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so we are going to do, cover that next October. Right. Um, where do you think the sequel to this movie goes? Dear 2024 Reg, wow, it's been a... Really eventful 12 months, hasn't it? I'm sitting here thinking about what you're going to be like in a year in a, in a beautiful podcasting studio, just the best that money can buy with all that Squarespace money you're raking in. We um, both have eye patches for some reason. We both have eye patches <laughs> and goatees. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, and we're talking about Halloween kills. And I think the plot summary is going to involve uh, Michael Myers escapes from the basement where he's been incinerated. It's going to be an homage to Halloween, too. I think it's going to be Allison, Karen, and Lori get taken to the hospital to look at their wounds, and Michael comes for them when they're in the hospital, which is abandoned by all the staff for some reason. The homage to the, to the second film, Michael stalks them through a seemingly abandoned hospital, yeah. the way that Halloween too, just like, why don't you turn the lights on? The only other note I had about this movie that I wanted to say is that this, uh, out of all of the Halloweens, Uh this is the most Halloween Halloween where it's like that 
first shot of like all of the trick-or-treaters it's mm-hmm. like your kids internal imagination of how you remember halloween where it's like yeah there were everywhere yeah. and all the houses were decorated yeah. and it was really dark out and we all and he was a pirate and he was a cowboy and there's a skeleton and a witch and we were all like running around and like the the block that this uh, series of murders takes place on in in Halloween 2018 is like the most fucking Halloween city ass. It, it might as well be a shot from Hocus Pocus. It's so beautiful, and I will say a lot of these movies in this franchise are not very Halloween. Like the original film was shot in the summer in L.A., so right. they kind of like made fifty fake leaves and then like dumped them out in front of every scene there's and then no, like had no to pick them back up again there's no yeah. decorations yeah yeah it yeah it, it's not it's not a very festive movie and a few of them they go a little bit like oh yeah we have a little bit more money now there's some good autumnal kind of vibes and stuff like that but generally speaking despite the name this is not a franchise that's like oh just throw on any halloween movie you're really gonna yeah. get the 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 fall spooky season vibes you're craving right halloween 2018 you do and that's, i do yeah. i do really yeah, appreciate sure. that yeah they, yeah they, there's um I, I mean even though i was kind of knocking the uh the the plot between Allison and and her boyfriend. I do think it's cute that they go to a, a a Halloween dance at the school, and they have a couple's costume, and it's Bonnie and Clyde. But he's Bonnie and she's Clyde. Gender swapped. Oh my god. Twenty eighteen. <laughs> yeah, it was twenty eighteen. It was just like a cute little character moment where it's it's like oh look at look at these sophisticated kids who are just having fun and being there, kids. There is even a choreographed cheerleader dance scene, which is like that's from an eighties horror movie. Yeah. There would be a choreographed dance at a at a party. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Anyway, I think we we've been going on for over an hour. So. Yeah, 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 we can we can go on um, to our next uh, yeah. segment. Uh, yeah. I think we call it the other segment. Um, you know, after we have our our freewheeling conversation about the movie, we move on to the other segments. I guess I'll start. So um, I am bringing back a other segment from other segments past, uh, specifically from the good boy episode. Uh, You had pitched an other segment that you called Romero and Juliet, where the original prompt was to take a George Romero movie, make a reboot or remake of that movie or sequel or whatever, uh, make it Judy Greer centric. Um, however, since George Romero doesn't really have anything to do with Halloween, I have tweaked that prompt somewhat to be um, the same thing, but take a movie by David Gordon Green or John Carpenter or Rob Zombie. Wild um, card there at the end. <laughs> to uh, yeah, so so what would your Green or Carpenter or Zombie? remake be in in 2023 we had john carpenter we had david gordon green and we had rob zombie so now we have no money we have no one to repair all this termite infested wood and all of our corpses are staying dead that's going to be the t-shirt that's going to be the 96 grease t-shirt i can feel it i can feel it in my bones um so why, why don't you go first um i got all three just, you got all three. I'm, gonna, okay. I'm just going to do all three. Go for it. Go for um, it. First, I thought, who is Judy? Who is the Judy Greer of John Carpenter? John Carpenter, uh, yes, he worked. Uh, his consummate producing partner Deborah Hill uh, uh-huh. co-wrote Halloween with him. Um, but like John Carpenter, not exactly a, a feminine uh, filmmaker. He makes tough, manly men, Howard Hawks kind of movies. But Nancy Loomis, who plays Annie, uh, later Nancy Keys, is sort of the Judy Greer of John Carpenter. She had a very short acting career before she pivoted into sculpting. 
but she is in like five of his movies in small parts. She is funny and sarcastic, and she is just sort of like, oh, look, it's 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 Nancy Cage. She's wonderful. Um, and I wanted specifically to put Judy Greer in The Fog. Because in The Fog, Nancy Keys accompanies Janet Leigh uh, as Janet Leigh's... Tra- she's basically her assistant as she's trying to get this town centennial going. And everything that Janet Leigh does, Nancy Keys has a sarcastic remark for. And I really like the idea of like just a checked out Judy Greer. And specifically, like <laughs> that is the energy of Judy Greer, which is bit part, not doing a whole lot of heavy lifting, but mm-hmm. always funny and always turns it into something memorable, even if she only has seven lines. Um, so I'm making her Sandy in the fog. Okay. As far as David Gordon Green goes, it was really hard for me to pick because honestly, I've seen a lot of David Gordon Green movies. I don't remember them well. I remember his Halloween movies. I remember Pineapple Express, but like, tell me three things that happened in Prince Avalanche. Paul Rudd had feelings to an indie rock song yeah it's so like i i apologize to all the david gordon green fans out there specifically i know jim is listening and going do all the real girls because because <laughs> our, our friend jim really loves all the real girls i don't love all the real girls i'm not gonna do that so i'm just gonna say david gordon green should have put uh judy greer in the third halloween movie halloween ends he didn't we're not covering halloween ends judy greer's not in it it's a mistake so i think she should have played karen in halloween ends <laughs> all right <laughs> Um, and then for Rob Zombie, you know, no spoilers for Halloween kills for Rob Zombie. There's really only like one female performer and it is Sherry Moon Zombie. Sure. And so I was like, all right, which Sherry Moon Zombie performance? And I was like, well, what I like from Judy Greer is big emotional outbursts. And that is the character of baby who is Sherry Moon Zombie's character in house of a thousand corpses and devil's rejects and three from hell. And those movies are, don't necessarily like, oh, they keep getting better and better. Three from hell is clearly the worst one. But Sherry Moon Zombie kept getting better in each one. She started off as sort of like a non-actor mm-hmm. and then eventually through attrition became an actor. <laughs> and like you watch Three from Hell and you're like, this movie sucks. But you know what? Sherry Moon's doing a good job. Good job, Sherry Moon. So I would say don't replace her in the latter two movies. Put her right in the beginning where she's just sort of like doing weird burlesque things and and cackling and, and, and cutting people with a big knife or whatever. So just Judy fun, Greer yeah. as like... I think I think the idea behind Baby in House of a Thousand Corpses is like very much Manson girl. Like she's just sort of oh, like like a groupie kind of. Yeah, she's sort of groupie and she's just sort of like giggly and you think she's ditzy, but then she's like, but I actually know what's going on and you thought you could underestimate me, uh-huh. but guess what? And then she oh, like a Harley Quinn type. A little bit, a little bit of a Harley Quinn type. So yeah, put Judy Greer in there. That could be cool. I am I am really impressed by your ambition. I I brought only one. My thought was. Uh, David Gordon Green's Halloween is a is a legacy sequel to John Carpenter's Halloween. So I came up with a legacy sequel for John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh. Um, the concept of this movie is because of climate change, the Arctic base from John Carpenter's The Thing, uh, where The Thing gets frozen again because no one makes it out. Um However, everything's fucking melting now, uh, and, and the thing uh, starts to thaw, and, and there's another scientific research team in the Arctic. It's all ladies this time. You're uh, welcome. Uh, Ocean's eight vibes. Yeah, yeah the, the oceans. It's the thing. The things eight. Um, the things eight. Uh, anyway, they ruined the thing. They made it woke. <laughs> Why did they make it woke? <laughs> the thing wears a bra. <laughs> the thing's wearing a bra. 
What the fuck? I start, I, okay, so I originally started thinking in the, of this as just like a beat for beat remake, but then I realized like, oh no, there is actually like a good reason for, for people to be like, no, let's, let's fuck off back to the Arctic 40 years later. Um, but my, but my thought process was kind of like, okay, well, if Judy Greer was going to be, uh, was going to be in a role from the thing, uh, how would I cast her? And I would make her Blair, which is Wilford Brimley's character. Huh. Okay. Um, Okay, so Blair's my favorite character in the original movie. Uh, so I, I did want to give her, you know, the, the character who, who I like the most. Um, I, I think what I see in Blair is a little bit of the arc that I see for her in, in Halloween, where it's like, you know, he's, he's this biologist. He's, he's in this, um, you know, he's in the Arctic. So this, this seems like, like someone who, you know, like, like has his career and has his passion and is really going for it. Um, but then, uh, when he sort of makes the scientific discovery of the thing and, and does the computations and, and figure out, um, what, what that means for them, that, that this organism is loose on their, on their base and the, um, the repercussions it could have, um, he, he just shuts down and goes full fucking nihilistic, like, like, no, we have to sacrifice ourselves. We cannot let this we cannot let this um, escape, you know, um, where it, where he destroys all their computers. He kills all the sled dogs. So they're not and, and, and he destroys the helicopter. So they're not going anywhere. Um, and 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 then there's also, um, you know, that scene where it's, it's like they have him um, in solitary confinement in the shed and they go out to check on him. And he has he has constructed a noose for himself um so fucking good so yeah so you just you just see this 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 guy um who is losing it the same that everyone else is but i guess because of his uh his understanding of the situation doesn't doesn't break down in fear he just he just shuts down and becomes this like robotic like you know i have to do abc to to get through this and that's kind of what happens with karen in in halloween and i just thought um, it was so interesting to see Judy Greer in in that role of, of going from, you know, the, the person who you expect who has a good life and, you know, um, has her family and, and the things that she cares about into, you know, um, like old, old dead eye with the rifle um, was was such an interesting transformation. I would like to see that sort of played out in a bit of a different context. And then, of course, I got to think, well, who else would be in this movie? Oh, why not? Let's go on. <laughs> um, so the challenge that I set for myself was no recasting from Annihilation because I was basically like, oh, I want to make sure. my own Annihilation. Um, so in the McCready role, I would put Ali Wong. Huh. <laughs> Man, you are just not agreeing with like anything I'm saying, and that's fine. I... I, I I, I mean, look, Ali Wong surprised me with beef. Like yeah. that, that was a thing where I'm like, damn, I did not think Ali Wong had this in her. Does Ali Wong have the capacity to surprise me twice? Of course she does. I just thought about the scene where McCready has everyone tied up and he's testing their blood. And I, I would just love to see Ali Wong do that with that like intense scowl that she gets. The, with the big ass beef glasses? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I could see her as, as like kind of a loose cannon a helicopter pilot who then realizes that like that like oh man she has to she has to step up and do something and it's just like oh fuck uh, uh I'm gonna tie everyone up you know I, I I could just see her kind of in that in that really like um like intense 
focus mode, but also in her mind kind of panicking and being like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so I, I would I would love to see her, her do that. Um, Keith David's role, um, child, because I kind of feel like the tension between the two of them is, is like a, a big driving force in this movie. I cast, you probably don't, know this actress her name is rutina wesley but i i recently started rewatching true blood uh-huh and she plays tara the the main character sookie's uh, best friend from childhood this is like you know vampires come out into the open because there's synthetic blood and a beautiful human woman and a hunky vampire fall in love uh and they have this like beautiful southern gothic romance and tara is having none of it from Jump Street. She doesn't trust the vampires. She doesn't like the vampires. She doesn't want to know about the vampires. She doesn't want Sookie dating the vampires. And she is just willing to um, to let Sookie know her opinion at any given opportunity. And and just just the, the way that she can just kind of like have this direct focus and this like, like this like um, th- this really pointed force towards the person who she's arguing with kind of made me think of, of Keith David, um, especially in, in, uh, in the thing. And then, uh, I was also thinking, uh, well now there's also, uh, the Gary, the station commander who's kind of in charge, but you, you see that he, he folds like a, like a cheap card table under pressure and he thinks no one realizes it, but everyone realizes it. And then there, he, he gets mutinied against. And I was like, well, well, who could I see doing that? Catherine Hahn. Okay, yeah, 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 um, yeah, yes, for sure. Rounding out the cast, I want Maya Hawke. Okay. I want Janelle Monet, and I want Chloe Grace Moretz because she's very good at making me never, ever trust a fucking word that she says in a movie. <laughs> Not that she's a bad actress, it's just whenever she's on whenever she's on the screen, I'm always like, what are you up to, Chloe Grace Moretz? How are you going to turn? How are you going to turn on everyone else in this scene? What are you hiding? <laughs> you watch Clouds of Sils Maria, and you're like, there's the villain. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Even watching Miseducation of Cameron Post, I was like, I bet you just say you're bisexual for attention. <laughs> not really. Not really. I'm kidding. That... It's, a, yeah, it's comedy jokes. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so, so that would be the, the main cast for my for my thing like a sequel. All right. Excellent. I mean, if Jason Reitman hasn't already done an all-female uh, script reading of the thing, then <laughs> yeah. we're already... I, w- I, w- I was going to say... Hundred percent, one million percent has been already pitched a dozen times, and when eventually they bring back the thing as a legacy sequel, uh-huh. what they are going to do is say, "Well, you see, because of global warming, we thought they were frozen." Yeah. Like yeah. that setup is like, "Oh yes, of course." Like that is now just. I wonder when they're going to make the movie where because of global warming the thing comes back. Like I've you, you said that, and then instantly I recognized it as true. So I do like that. Yeah, setup. maybe I should be a studio exec. Yeah. You should. Yeah, you should. Because then I won't have to work anymore. <laughs> I could be a trophy wife. <laughs> and I, for one, am great working under pressure. <laughs> um, we have another other segment. We do have another other segment. Why don't you take it away? Uh, for this other segment, I was just like watching this, uh, this movie, and I was just like, it is so genius that they made a Halloween. It isn't some dated 70s thing. It speaks to my generation right. by putting podcasters in it. it- Hey, if if the if the people at home know one thing about our interests and hobbies, they know we like podcasts. 
Um, the two best horror movies of all time, Halloween 2018 and Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Why? <laughs> the two horror movies that feature podcasters. Runner up, Tusk. <laughs> <laughs> and those are the three. Um, there might be more. I don't know. I like to think of those as a trilogy. It's a, it's the, it's the podcast trilogy. When are you going to make another for your podcast trilogy? Um, so for this, this segment, I thought what we should do is take a classic horror movie and then shove some fucking podcasters in it. All right. Okay. And this segment is called... This mind-shattering terror brought to you by me undies. <laughs> Very good. Would you like to go first, Reg? Sure. I'm just doing a straight-up remake of a, a classic horror movie that we know is a classic because there was already a remake about a decade ago, um, and I'm going to remake Fright Night. Of course. <laughs> um, you know, so so you have Fright Night, uh, but, uh, you know, we still have, have Charlie, Evil Ed, and Amy and their high schoolers, but they got a podcast together and, you know, they just got their fun little horror podcast and they're just, they're, they're just their horror geeks and they're, and they're recording in, in Charlie's basement. Um, and they just have their, their janky little setup and they're, you know, they're 20 friends who listen to them at school or whatever. And, and maybe there's some tension that's starting to build because Charlie and Amy just started dating and it's kind of making things weird for the three of them being on the podcast but then who should move in next door but super cool hunky jerry who is like a super profesh podcaster <laughs> and they they don't know him because <laughs> sorry go ahead and 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 they, they hadn't heard of him because he is like a um grind set life hack type podcaster and, and they're just like dorky teenagers um and but but they they see the the equipment that he's bringing in and, and they see the you know the, the the latest uh the latest sound recording equipment and and they see the um the the, the panels that are gonna be going up in in his studio to to muffle environmental sounds and they are just like so in awe and so jealous he has a video component i knew we should have, i was telling you we should have a video component <laughs> the boxes that they're bringing in to the house are all like you know they they have like the the hello fresh box and they've got the stitch fix box and um it's like oh man he's got all the sponsors of um, man great wow this guy's been doing this a while <laughs> deep cut podcast jokes <laughs> Of course, Jerry's a vampire, Natch. Um, but the way that he kind of uh, gets uh, gets Ed and Amy away from Charlie so he can turn them is he offers them internships. <laughs> um, so then he has to go to... I think Peter Vincent's Fright Night is still kind of the same thing. I think it's still like a, like, like a cable access or PBS kind of show um you know, you know just to kind of keep that that sense of like oh the old times um up but i i think he I, the rest of the movie is pretty much the same it's just, it's just that little tweak to the setup um just because i i don't know I, I guess i guess with uh with halloween i was kind of thinking about like you know oh the way that the way that laurie kind of goes all in on her trauma and like is it worth it and like what is she what does she gain you know yeah, her family survives, but, you know, are they even a family just because, like, they've spent decades hurting each other? And, you know, w what is this? And it kind of made me think about, w you know, with 
with podcasting. I mean, I mean, not, you know, not that this is a podcast that has like, oh, real star potential, but you know, you, you think about like, oh, you know, um, go, you know, going all in on th- and things like, like sponsorships and, and, um, you know, you know, bringing on guests who maybe you're not interested in, but there's, um, but there's some negotiating to be doing and it's going to, going to get you something. And, you know, uh, like, 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 like how much do you trade until you become dead? you know, until you, you become something that looks like what you want it to be, but you're not that thing anymore. Not really, which that's not what Fright Night's about. I mean, Fright Night's about gay panic and we all know it, but my Fright Night is about podcasting. So there you go. Yeah. I was, I was going to, I was going to make a reference to like, you can't have the, the, you can't have the bisexual panic of, of Fright Night because now he would just be like, I'm bisexual. And then everyone goes, okay, who cares? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, I think, I think there is a line to be drawn between um, sort of becoming an influencer and becoming a vampire. And uh, yeah, I think you could do that with Fright Night. And also I think Billy Cole, uh, Jerry Dandridge's like uh, familiar has big uh, producer energy. He doesn't. Yeah. You don't. You don't hear him a lot. But sometimes he'll pop on the mic to be like, to be like, that was the third Superman. Third Superman. That's right. Yeah. yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He's totally. He's totally the the producer. So how about, how about you, Patrick? So I have been listening to a lot of the Magnus Archives, very popular mm-hmm. horror fiction podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, the company that puts it on is called Rusty Quill. They're a British based uh, fiction podcast uh, mm-hmm. sort of company. And so a lot of the commercials I hear for the Magnus Archives are commercials for their shows from, you know, British announcers and all that. So um, for your listening pleasure, I'm going to tell you about my podcast uh, in the manner that I'm most accustomed to at this point. From Stitch and Headgum, the people who brought you the fame podcasts like Missing Richard Simmons and Dead Eyes, comes your next podcast obsession. Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Oh, no. Join host Karina Longworth as she takes a look at the career and life of fallen film star Blanche Hudson, a promising actress whose time was cut short by a mysterious car accident. What starts for Miss Longworth as a routine interview for Turner Classic Movies becomes a fascinating showbiz saga when she discovers that Blanche's dear caretaker is none other than her sister, former vaudeville star, baby Jane Hudson. You'll grow to love this colorful cast of characters, including their housekeeper Elvira, only in the first two episodes, (laughs) pianist Edwin and his kooky mother Dahlia, and the most delightfully charismatic pet parakeet you've ever met. (laughs) You're really going to love that parakeet. You might be thinking, if I wasn't too ADHD to focus on audiobooks, I could probably spend my time in the grocery store doing something that would enrich my life instead of listening to the Craven Trainwreck podcast gawking at the misfortune of celebrity. But you are, Blanche! You are too ADHD to listen to audiobooks! <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I, am, I am, like, scared for Karina Longworth. <laughs> I want her to be okay. No. That's the price we pay. It's a it's a hard road, but someone must podcast. Look, <laughs> let's put it this way. Uh-huh. If Karina Longworth gets in too deep uh-huh. and has to be taken out of the picture, uh-huh. none of us want to see that happen. However, then who then- do you want to investigate a murder? Maybe her husband. Huh? Knives out scribe Ryan Johnson. Oh. Okay, so you got your little plan B there. All right. I, I'm just thinking to myself, oh my God, if 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 Jane and Blanche turn on Karina Longworth and she gets, you know, 
knocked down the stairs, then there goes the, the like only film podcast of any substance. <laughs> I would love that. I would love to see that movie or listen to that podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever happened to Baby Jane? It writes itself. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Can you believe they made that fucking Richard Simmons podcast and it only lasted six episodes because the answer was, leave me alone. Yeah, well. (laughs) Fucking. (laughs) Podcasters are trash, present company included. I mean, there's, there's, there's trash like, like the, the lovable opossums that rummage through your dumpster and there's trash like nuclear waste buried under the town hall or whatever. We don't have any commercials. We're, we're the good ones. (laughs) Well, on that note, um. That brings us to our final portion, Judalization. Um, This is where we keep a running list of the movies that we have featured on this podcast. And we rank them in terms of what movies best utilize Judy Greer as a member of the cast and which do the poorest job. Um, Currently, we have 14 on the list. Um... We have Addicted to Fresno at number one. We have the aforementioned Good Boy at number two. Uh, And we have Aporia at number three. Um, And then all the way down at the bottom of the list, we have In Memory of My Father. So do you have any thoughts about where Halloween ranks? Well, for, for sure, top half. In seventh place, we have Lolly Love, and mm-hmm. in eighth place, we have What Planet Are You From? I, I would definitely agree with you that Halloween better utilizes Judy Greer than either of those movies. Do you think it should be above Aporia, below Aporia, or below The Wedding Planner? Aporia's three, Wedding Planner's four. Hmm. I think it belongs around, around there. I think Judy Greer really surprised me on this one. I think she's very yeah. well utilized, uh, as per my argument before about like just having a full three-dimensional character in little bits and pieces. I think that Aporia is a better utilization, but where I, I, I am right now is, do we put Halloween above or below the wedding planner? It's so hard for me, because the wedding planner to me is just like quintessential. You just have a loopy weirdo, yeah. and every scene the she's in- The best friend in a rom-com. She's a weird, loopy weirdo, Yeah, and it's yeah. really funny. Yeah. And- I, I think we have to put it above- Adaptation, but below the wedding planner. But, but gotcha. <laughs> it's great. It's great. It's tough. It's very tough. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm looking at this and I'm like, somehow. You, you know what? Though, though I, 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 okay. I, I retract, I retract my gotcha because that speaks to the strength of her performance. It does not speak to how well the movie is utilizing her. So I, I think you are Correct. I think that her comedic energy in the wedding planner for the character of Penny is a better utilization than the dramatic tension that she brings to the role of Karen in Halloween. Okay. So so that means that Halloween will be on the list at number five. Does that sound everything sounds good to me this amontillado is just really i'm flying are you sure you don't want yeah i'm good i'm good i'm good well that that is our discussion on 2018 lega sequel halloween join us next october for halloween kills a very different discussion (laughs) but before uh before next october we have some other treats in store absolutely um the 
upcoming episode, uh, we are going to be covering Eric LaRue, uh, which is the directorial... Putting my hands together. <laughs> which is the directorial debut of Michael Shannon. Mm-hmm. Um, we have tickets to see it at Chicago International Film Festival. Um, so we will be bringing you our um, loosey-goosey, off-the-dome uh, reactions after we see this this uh chicago premiere yeah. um, which we're really excited for uh, judy greer in the main role um she plays uh, the mother of uh a mass shooter um so um th- this is a movie that is willing to very uh, funny to be on the nose about <laughs> judy greer always a barrel of laughs very <laughs> excited for this one so uh, yeah, so so join us in November uh, for our discussion of Eric Larue. Ninety Six Greers is part of the Now Playing Network. Check out other podcasts at nowplayingnetwork.net. Follow us on Mastodon at nine six Greers at laserdisc.party. Follow me Reg on Letterboxd at Panda Bear Shape, where you can also find the updated list of judalization. And you can follow me on Instagram and Blue Sky under Uptown Song Club. That's right. Uh, and you can email us at nine six Greers at proton.me. And until next time, I am Reg and I'm Patrick. And, and say, say goodbye, goodbye to these. Goodbye.